This is Radar Contact Lost, the podcast. I'm your host, Dave Gorham. I'm a retired meteorologist with a career in the United States Air Force, commercial and broadcast weather forecasting, with a specialty of aviation meteorology. I've been assigned to provide weather support to Air Force One and Marine One. I've briefed military and corporate flight crews around the world. I've been both a television and radio broadcast meteorologist and have spent a large part of my career providing commercial weather support to clients near and far. I've created this podcast series to bring you interesting but tragic stories of airplane crashes that are either caused by the weather or when the weather is a contributing factor to the crash. Today's episode, When Lightning Strikes, is about the technology that goes into protecting the airplane you're flying in from the most common weather event to impact aviation, lightning. Though you and I may be seasoned travelers, every day somebody gets on an airplane for the first time, and when the skies turn dark, out comes the phone, already connected to airport Wi-Fi, of course, and the question, what happens when my airplane is struck by lightning, is entered into the search box. Google will return more than 5 million answers, and it's a question that's as relevant today as it was 10 years ago. In this episode, we'll examine exactly that. What happens when an airplane is struck by lightning? We'll also look at how aircraft are protected from lightning. I'll cover a few definitions, and we'll check in with Captain Michelle and First Officer Larry from our Radar Contact Loss team to get a first-hand account of lightning from the perspective of the aircraft captain. And I'll put your mind at ease, if it's not already, about worrying if your plane will crash if it's ever struck by lightning. But would it surprise you to know that the plane you're flying in, or about to fly in, or even the one you just flew in, has already been struck by lightning and probably has been struck several, if not many times? The math and the maintenance records say that's true. I'll also say that if you're a regular flyer, your plane may have already been struck by lightning and you might not even know it. It was a dark and stormy night is the classic, cliche way to begin a mystery or a romance novel, but this was indeed the case when, at 8.58 p.m. on December 8, 1963, Clipper 214 was flying into a thunderstorm and then exploded in flight near Elkton, Maryland, a rural town about 40 miles southwest of Philadelphia. Clipper 214 was the call sign of Pan Am's November 709 Papa Alpha, a Boeing 707-121 that had begun its journey earlier that afternoon in San Juan, Puerto Rico, with a stop later in Baltimore. At the time of the lightning strike, or what would eventually be identified as a lightning strike, the plane was en route to its final destination of Philadelphia. The plane was just a bit more than 15 minutes away from landing when air traffic controllers confirmed to the Pan Am crew that a line of thunderstorms was moving through the area. The captain of Clipper 214 opted to circle in a holding pattern while the worst of the weather moved past the airport, though it seemed pretty bad in the holding pattern as well. Heavy rain, strong wind gusts, frequent lightning. One of those lightning strikes made contact with the Pan Am flight as they waited to land. The plane then exploded and plummeted to the ground in a massive fireball. A rain-soaked field was the site of the impact and it was set ablaze. The aircraft was completely destroyed. All 81 people on board were killed. This was indeed a tragic and dramatic end to Clipper 214, but could there be any good news associated with this story? Yes, indeed there is. 
Thanks to this crash, new equipment was added to airliners, while new research, standards, and regulations proved so good that this was the last time a commercial airliner in the United States experienced a fatal crash resulting from lightning. Changes across the industry included such things as increasing the thickness of aluminum skin on airplane wings and additional spark and fire suppression technology near the wing tanks. Unfortunately, even though this crash was the last lightning-related crash of a commercial liner in the United States, there have been others elsewhere. I'll take a look at each of those towards the end of this episode. In a few minutes, I'll talk about how airplanes are protected from lightning, but I want to talk a little bit about the state of aviation in 1963, primarily because this crash took the industry by surprise. It was not a surprise that airplanes are struck by lightning. In fact, as I mentioned a moment ago, statistics suggest that every commercial airliner is struck by lightning at least once or twice a year. This is true today, and it was true in 1963. Generally, these strikes are considered harmless. So when this plane was struck and then exploded in midair, lightning was not only an unlikely source of the explosion, it was quickly ruled out as a cause and other scenarios were considered. One theory suggested that in-flight turbulence was so severe that it caused a rupture in a fuel tank or fuel line, and then the leaking fuel led to a fire and the explosion. This theory gained so much traction that a U.S. representative from the state of New York made a request of the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, to restrict flying at times of or in areas of severe turbulence. However, neither the FAA or the plane's manufacturer, Boeing, saw any pattern or evidence of this, not in this crash and not in the industry, and the request was not given any consideration. Reading the crash report from the Civil Aeronautics Board, and let me take a moment to remind you that the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, was not formed until 1967. Prior to that, the Civil Aeronautics Board, the CAB, investigated such crashes. So, reading the CAB report, I was surprised to learn that within 24 hours of the investigation's beginning, lightning, as a cause of the crash, was ruled out. Originally, the investigators thought lightning might have caused an electrical discharge in a fuel tank, but they quickly ruled that out within the first day because it was just accepting that lightning doesn't or couldn't do that. The investigation continued for a year and a half, but by ruling out lightning so quickly, I think this goes to show how the industry underestimated the potential danger of a lightning strike and how they really thought it had to be something else. Instead of lightning, they looked at other possibilities. I mentioned severe turbulence a moment ago. They also considered sabotage. Today, perhaps the word would be terrorism. Another theory was related to metal fatigue. This idea was put forward because about four years prior to this crash, this same airplane was involved in a slow-speed training incident that resulted in a spin that was so severe it actually tore one of the plane's four engines from a wing. The captain was able to regain control and land the plane safely, but you can see how that could easily be something investigators would want to consider and dig into. That engine, by the way, landed in a field there were no injuries on the ground or in the plane. As the investigation continued, one by one, the other theories were ruled out. The turbulence theory was ruled out because even though there were thunderstorms in the area, other pilots in the area flying at similar altitudes at the same time reported a lack of turbulence. 
I'll insert here that thunderstorm-related turbulence can be very localized, impacting one plane near an airport and not another. So I wouldn't be so quick to rule out turbulence just because other pilots in the area didn't experience any. And remember, this is 1963. Thunderstorms, turbulence, microbursts, and lightning were not well understood. In Episode 3 of Radar Contact Lost, I discussed the 1985 crash of Delta Flight 191, a large L-1011 airliner that was hit by a microburst just a couple of miles before it was to land. The plane that landed in front of them, just two miles ahead of the Delta plane, landed without issue. Pilots surveyed after the 1985 crash, in general, agreed that, like the Delta pilot, they too would fly right into and through a thunderstorm if it was between their plane and the runway. And this was more than 20 years after the Pan Am crash in 1963. And something else, this crash occurred during the rapid advancement of commercial aviation. World War II had ended less than 20 years earlier, and Pan Am had only moved to jet aircraft just five years before this crash. And it was the dawning of the golden age of jet travel. It was literally a bold new world. In this era, with what kind of regard did pilots treat thunderstorms? That's a great question, but I know it's a significantly different mindset today. Back to the Pan Am crash and the theories that the investigators were, well, investigating. As far as stress or metal fatigue, it was determined that the plane was too low, about 5,000 feet or 1,500 meters, to generate the kinds of force in a dive or spin that would cause even fatigued metal to fail. So the metal fatigue theory was ruled out. Pan Am even tried to recreate a situation where severe turbulence could have caused a rupture in the fuel tank, but they were not successful. What about sabotage? There is no evidence that ever suggested sabotage. This early theory, like the others, was ruled out. With nowhere else to turn, investigators had to return to what they thought initially was unlikely, lightning. So what happened? Why did the investigators circle back to lightning as a possible cause? As they gathered debris from the crash over the following 12 days, they found sections of the left wingtip along the flight path three miles away. They discovered that as much as nine feet of the wingtip had been separated by an explosion, and because the fragments were bulging outward, the explosive force therefore came from inside the wing, damage that could only be caused by a fuel tank explosion. Amidst all the damage to the wingtip, they noticed several lightning marks, pinhole pricks and holes no bigger than a pencil. As the investigation continued and with lightning evidence mounting, they had to admit that lightning was the cause of the explosion. Though the investigation into the crash of Pan Am November 709 Papa Alpha took almost a year and a half, once lightning was confirmed as the cause of the crash, the industry quickly changed its collective view of how such a phenomenon could impact aircraft and many changes were instituted. Amongst the most notable were the addition of static dischargers, which the FAA mandated within a week of the crash. These items are now installed on almost all civilian aircraft. Static electricity builds up on the skin of an airplane thanks to the friction of dust and water particles, even the air molecules themselves moving across the wing and other surfaces. The dischargers provide an avenue for this built-up electricity to harmlessly move from the airplane to the air. This includes electricity from a lightning strike. These discharge sticks or wicks extend backwards from the trailing edge of the wing 
There are several on each wing, and you can easily see them if you have a window seat that lets you see the wing. Discharge wicks are located in other places as well, like on the radome at the front of the airplane, and on the tail too. These dischargers can be very useful in a post-crash investigation. If it's evident they've been damaged by electricity, then lightning may very well be to blame. But if lightning is suspected and the dischargers are not damaged, then lightning can easily be ruled out. Again, these dischargers came about after the Pan Am crash. As we dig into how an airplane is protected from damage caused by lightning strikes, I think it would be helpful to first know the definition of lightning. Here it is, from the Glossary of Meteorology, first published by the American Meteorological Society in 1959. Lightning is a transient, high-current, electric discharge into the atmosphere with path lengths measured in kilometers. Lightning is comprised of dendritic networks of leader and streamer dischargers that form the physical dimensions of the flash and determine its emission spectrum. Natural lightning arises from the strong electric fields that exist between separate regions of a thunderstorm slash cumulonimbus cloud whose hydrometeors have a surplus of either positive or negative electric charges. That's the definition. In a nutshell, there's a charge that gets built up in a thunderstorm because of all the rubbing and bumping of particles, and when there's a surplus of either positive or negative energy, the surplus is discharged. Part of that definition included the term hydrometeor, so let me explain that a hydrometeor is a condensed particle of water or ice, such as a raindrop or hail, that is suspended in the atmosphere. And just after I boil it down to the simplicity of friction, the National Severe Storms Lab in Norman, Oklahoma, adds this to the definition of lightning. Quote, the creation of lightning is a complicated process. We generally know what conditions are needed to produce lightning, but there is still debate about exactly how a cloud builds up electrical charges and how lightning forms." Unquote. I will add that the process is very similar to one you may have discovered as a youngster when sliding your slippers across the carpet and then touching a metal object such as a lamp or a doorknob. Dry slippers or wool socks on a dry carpet in a dry atmosphere like your living room in the wintertime will cause a buildup of static electricity that is then discharged in the form of a spark at the tip of your finger when you touch the light switch. I want to state that modern aircraft are protected from lightning strikes and crashes brought about by a lightning strike are exceedingly rare. As I mentioned at the top of this podcast, the 1963 crash of Clipper 214 was the last time a commercial plane crash was attributed to lightning in this country. But even today's modern aircraft are not immune from damage caused by lightning strikes. My wife and I were traveling to Europe several years ago when our commercial flight was struck by lightning in such a way that the crew announced that we would be returning to Newark International Airport in New Jersey to change airplanes. Of course, they were very guarded in their announcement and were careful not to reveal what the extent of the damage was, but it was sufficient enough, or perhaps it was just simply out of an abundance of caution, that it required the change to a new airplane before crossing the North Atlantic in the middle of the night. Of course, this was just fine by me. However, sometimes the damage can be significant, yet still allow the aircraft to continue to its destination. Captain Michelle a retired FedEx captain and on the team here at RCL, reports that she has experienced lightning strikes on each type of aircraft she's flown. On one flight, a lightning strike caused one of the three onboard generators on a 727 to be knocked out, 
a two-foot chunk of the ray dome was blown off, and a two-foot section of the tail, or the vertical stabilizer, was blown off too. She told me that she landed normally, but it was a pretty spectacular show from the cockpit. A contrasting story that she told me is that when she was in the Air Force flying T-38s, she was unaware that on one of her flights, her small jet aircraft had been struck by lightning. She only learned of the lightning strike when the maintenance crew discovered the damage during the routine post-flight inspection. With lightning strikes being everything from spectacular to mundane, I asked her if there was what she might call a typical lightning strike experience. She said, sometimes there's just a bunch of minor weird stuff that fails in the cockpit. Most of the time it's minimal and not a big deal. Only once was it spectacular. None of her lightning strikes required a force landing or were a prelude to a possible crash. But then I asked her about the flight when she lost the generator, the ray dome, and part of the tail. To me, that sounded pretty serious. She said yes, it was serious, but they were already descending toward the destination, so there was no need to do anything different or special. Then she said that St. Elmo's fire is always pretty cool and that can freak out the younger, less experienced pilots. St. Elmo's fire is a little bit off topic for this podcast, but it can look like very close-up lightning, even though it's not lightning and is quite harmless. In a little bit, I'll take a shot at explaining it. Captain Michelle has been flying military and commercial aircraft since the 1980s, so she has quite a few lightning experiences. Most, as I mentioned, are benign. The other FedEx pilot on our team, First Officer Larry, has only been with FedEx for a bit more than a year, but he's been flying corporate jets and vintage warbirds out of the Lone Star Flight Museum in Houston for about 20 years. That's certainly a lot of flying, but when I asked him to relate a lightning story or two, I was surprised when he replied that he had none, but then he quickly added, yet. It's no accident that it's been decades, actually many decades, since the last lightning-related commercial plane crash here in the United States. Let's talk about why that is. First though, let's talk about the exposure an airplane has to lightning and how where it may or may not be flying influences its exposure. As an example, a plane that flies a lot compared to one that rarely flies has a greater exposure to lightning. Also, a plane that flies in the mid and lower levels of the atmosphere is more likely to be exposed to a lightning strike. For example, lightning is most prevalent between 5,000 and 15,000 feet, or about 1,500 to 4,600 meters. So, a commercial plane may fly every day, but it spends most of its time above 30,000 feet, not typical lightning territory. This kind of plane is only between 5,000 and 15,000 feet shortly after takeoff or just before landing. On the other hand, a plane that regularly cruises at 10 or 12,000 feet is much more likely to be struck as it's spending a good part of its life in, if you will, the danger zone. Another consideration is where the plane is flying. More lightning strikes occur near the equator rather than at or near the poles, so more strikes occur in Florida, Texas, and Venezuela than say Norway or Alaska. Therefore, a commuter plane that spends most of its time flying from Oslo to Stockholm and back is less likely to be struck by lightning as, say, a commuter plane that spends its life flying between Miami and Orlando. To further demonstrate this, Texas experienced more than 27 million lightning strikes in 2022, while Rhode Island experienced just under 11,000 strikes. Of course, Texas is a huge state and grabs a lot of those 27 million strikes just because it is so massive, while Rhode Island is at the opposite end of the size scale 
and much farther north than Texas. But my point is that if you own an airplane, your exposure to a lightning strike or multiple lightning strikes is much greater in Texas and Florida than it is in Norway or Alaska or Rhode Island. And then we have to consider the time of year and your frequency of flying. You can fly in Texas, but if you're a fair weather flyer and only fly in winter, your odds of being struck by lightning, even in Texas, are quite low. Likewise, if you fly commercially, but avoid the thunderstorm-prone locations and times of the year, the chance of being struck by lightning is about as low as you can make it. All of those statistics notwithstanding, perhaps we really don't need to avoid flying in lightning-prone areas or at times of the year because airplanes have built-in lightning protection. And, as I mentioned earlier, crashes because of lightning strikes have been non-existent in the United States since 1963, as of this recording, that's 60 years. What about the lightning strike itself? As the aircraft flies through the air, the leading edges of the airplane, things like the nose, the wings, the tail, generate friction, which leads to static electricity. This can then attract a lightning strike. In other words, sometimes the process of just flying through the air can actually generate or attract a lightning strike simply by the plane or helicopter doing what it does, flying. Once the lightning strikes the airplane, the lightning then looks for the easiest way to pass from the airplane to something else, which means it takes the path of least resistance to another cloud or to the ground. With the plane's exterior made of metal, the lightning, or the electricity, travels across the plane's skin and exits the plane as it continues to Earth or, as is more often the case, to a cloud with an opposite electrical charge. The lightning does not enter the cabin of the airplane, though some damage to electrical equipment is sometimes possible. To help understand this, let's talk about the electrical charge of a cloud. Not only does a cloud generate its own electricity, thanks to the friction occurring inside the cloud, but all that friction leads to a buildup of electricity that will eventually discharge as lightning. While waiting for enough electricity to cause a discharge, positively and negatively charged particles congregate in different parts of the thunderstorm. The frozen hydrometeors, ice and hail, are typically positively charged and will be found in the higher, colder altitudes of the cloud. And since we're talking about thunderstorms, the type of cloud, of course, is a cumulonimbus cloud. Negative particles are the liquid hydrometeors that would be found in the lower altitudes of the cloud. So it's usually quite easy for a lightning strike to leave an airplane and move to another cloud, or perhaps even the same cloud. It can, though, travel to the ground instead. This makes a difference because where the lightning goes after it hits the airplane has different and sometimes dramatic results. What determines the seriousness of the strike? The amount of electricity in the strike, where the strike hits and exits the plane, and the duration of the strike. The typical strike is as much as 300 million volts. Additionally, there are two basic types of lightning strike scenarios that could happen once a plane is struck by lightning. The cloud-plane-cloud scenario and the cloud-plane-ground scenario. The cloud-plane-cloud type of lightning strike can produce a strike that is likely unknown to most of the passengers may be only apparent to the crew on the flight deck or to the mechanics after the plane has landed. The strike hits the plane, travels across the metal skin, and discharges then to a nearby cloud. 
There will be a flash and maybe a boom, but it's typically a non-event in terms of damage. However, if the lightning strike can't easily find an oppositely charged cloud to pass to, the lightning will search out the Earth, and that's the second type of lightning strike scenario. The cloud plane ground scenario is much more serious. A loud bang, a bright flash of light will be visible. The flight crew will be well aware of the strike. As Captain Michelle said earlier, some oddball failures to some instruments or equipment may occur, or rarely something more serious can happen, especially to the equipment close to the airplane's skin. However, sensitive equipment that cannot risk failure is protected in a more robust way with additional shielding and heavy-duty grounding and surge suppression. The cloud plane ground strike typically will possess higher amperage than a cloud plane cloud strike, so the potential for damage can be greater. When you watch a YouTube video showing a spectacular lightning strike on an airplane, it's usually the cloud, plane, ground type of lightning strike. And with that, I'm touching on how an airplane is protected from lightning. So let's look more closely at this. Lightning protection systems are in place to prevent damage. And that's to prevent damage, not prevent the lightning strike itself, as that's practically inevitable. First, all aircraft, in order to qualify for an airworthiness certificate from their approving federal authority, undergo testing. Testing for many things, of course, but for the interest of this podcast, testing to ensure that the plane can withstand a lightning strike. For certification, the FAA states, in part, that lightning protection should identify the appropriate engine systems and equipment, their associated wiring, and all the protection features used by the type design to meet the engine and lightning protection requirements. It goes on, at a minimum, systems whose failure or malfunction could prevent continued safe flight and landing of the aircraft and whose failure or malfunction could reduce the capability of the aircraft or the ability of the flight crew to cope with adverse operating conditions. Good stuff and it cuts to the heart of the matter. In the big picture, the metal skin of the airplane acts as a Faraday cage. The Faraday cage has been around since the mid-1800s. It's a metal cage that acts as a conduit of, or for, electricity. You can build a Faraday cage in any size, large or small, in the shape of really anything, a cube or a ball, or any shape that will surround an item on all sides so that it will shield delicate electronics or other items, such as a person, when placed inside of the Faraday cage. Metal is an excellent conductor of electricity, so a lightning strike or any electrical current will pass along the metal of the Faraday cage and not pass to anything inside. Depending on the cage construction, radio waves can or may pass through or may be blocked. So a radio inside an airplane has to be designed and shielded in a way so that it can continue to function. Faraday cages are fascinating. How they're used, how they protect, what they protect, I'm sure there are many podcasts that dive deep into this topic, but knowing what they are and how they protect an airplane is what I want to be sure to explain here for Radar Contact Lost. This is a good opportunity to test your knowledge of traditional metal airplane skins and the new lightweight composite airplane skins. When do you think composites came to be used for airplane skins? Well, I use the word new, and I really shouldn't, because the composite airplane skin goes back to the late 1930s with the construction of Howard Hughes's eight-engined behemoth known as the Spruce Goose. The Spruce Goose used a composite of wood and resin, the wood was birch, and the composite was named Duramold. 
Later, in the 1960s, came an extensive use of fiberglass, and then other fiber-reinforced materials became more widely used. When we think of composite airplane skins today, the material being used is known as Carbon Fiber Reinforced Polymer, or CFRP. The CFRPs are made of high-strength weaves of fiberglass and carbon fiber that are blended in a mixture of resin, which essentially glues the fibers together. Then they're baked at high temperature to form a strong, rigid structure. These different layers are then sandwiched together with a honeycomb center, stronger and thicker where needed, thinner and lighter in areas that are less stressed. But, exclamation point, but, these composite skins are not good conductors of electricity, and a lightning strike could have devastating results if it were to strike a plane made solely of the composites I just described. To add lightning protection to a composite skin, a wire mesh is laid into the composite so it will act as a Faraday cage and transmit the lightning strike across the skin of the airplane without damage to any of the plane's internals. As with anything that flies, lighter is better, and the new CRFPs are substantially lighter than traditional aluminum, even with the metal mesh inlay that creates the Faraday cage. In the not-too-distant future, airplane skins will rely on lightweight materials that will incorporate nanoparticles and graphene, both excellent conductors of electricity. This may, or likely will, eliminate the need for the metal mesh inlay used in today's composites. This mesh, by the way, was how a piece of debris that washed up on a beach in Madagascar was identified as aircraft debris. This beach, or this region, is the site of debris that has washed ashore that has been thought to belong to the missing Malaysian Airlines MH370, which went down over the Indian Ocean in March of 2014. And yes, I'm just as surprised as you to reminded that this was nine years ago. It was argued that this particular piece of composite debris was from a boat or a marine application rather than from the missing Boeing 777 that is thought to have crashed in this area with all 239 souls on board now presumed dead. However, not all composites are created alike. Perhaps not surprisingly, there's a difference in construction between an airplane, a boat, and even a Formula One car. In the case of MH370, it was the fine wire mesh running through the beach debris that ruled out a marine application, and an F1 car for that matter. The mesh confirmed that the debris was from a Boeing 777. Was it THE Malaysian Airlines 777? Well, of the 20 pieces of debris found in this area, including four pieces from this particular beach, Six pieces have been, quote, determined to be almost certain, highly likely, or likely from MH370 by the authorities, unquote. If you're interested in the story of this crash, what happened, where we stand today, the theories and conspiracies, there's a new documentary series on Netflix that premiered as this episode of Radar Contact Lost was being recorded. Let's go back to the Pan Am 707 that crashed in 1963. If you remember, it exploded. Based on where the explosion occurred in the wing, and because the metal was bent outward, it was determined that fuel, or more accurately, fuel vapor, was ignited by the lightning strike. Why doesn't this happen more often? Following this crash, standards were enacted to ensure that all vents, access doors, and caps must adhere to the relevant lightning protection certification standards. This includes construction around fuel tanks that must be thick enough to withstand a lightning burn-through. 
fuel lines and engines are also similarly protected. Additionally, new aviation fuels with less hazardous vapors have become normal in an effort to minimize the potential impact of a severe lightning strike that might ignite fuel vapors. And there's another way to protect aircraft from lightning, not flying. Of course, I'm, I'm being a bit misleading by saying that. Because like in the air, aircraft are built to withstand lightning strikes even on the ground. But I do want to mention why your takeoff or landing may be delayed when lightning or thunderstorms are in the area. Any tall metal structure on a wide, flat expanse of concrete or asphalt, like a flight line, can attract a lightning strike. So, airport operations have to consider the safety of those outside the plane. Those inside the plane are safe, but the ones most at risk are the ramp personnel servicing the airplane. Someone touching the airplane, or attached to the airplane, for instance, with a headset cable. Serious injuries may occur if the plane is struck by lightning. And this is true for anyone outside during a lightning storm. Whether you're at a swimming pool, playing on a field, at the beach, anyone outside near a thunderstorm should seek shelter immediately. Typically, ramp personnel at the airport will be directed inside if lightning is detected within 3 to 5 miles, or 5 to 8 kilometers, and will then have to wait at least 15 minutes after the last lightning strike occurs before returning to the flight line. I'll add, it's not just lightning that's a danger in this situation. With nearby thunderstorms, dangerous winds, including low-level wind shear and microbursts, become a serious problem. This is a real danger for planes taking off, landing, or taxiing at an airport. These strong winds can also push or topple maintenance or other equipment typically found at airports, becoming a risk for all flight line personnel. And here's something else that is a bit off-topic, but since we've been talking about the way a cloud generates lightning, I think it's interesting to know how this knowledge is being used to help forecasters develop better, severe weather forecasts with a lower rate of false alarms. As I mentioned previously, charged particles within a thunderstorm gather and congregate in a particular way. How this happens, and the ability to detect it, is helping forecasters anticipate severe weather occurrences such as outbursts of frequent cloud-to-ground lightning strikes, strong damaging winds, hail, and tornadoes. Using lightning detection equipment and other sensors like weather satellites that can track this activity in real time, forecasters are able to see where and how fast these storms are intensifying by how much lightning is occurring inside the cloud, both the strength, frequency, and how the flashes are clustered. Using this new data, forecasters expect false alarms for thunderstorms that warnings are issued for could be decreased by as much as 70%, and that tornadoes and large hail could be correctly identified approximately three out of four times using lightning data only. That's truly remarkable technology, and it's being used today. I've mentioned the ray dome, or the nose cone of the airplane a couple of times, and I should have provided more information about this, but we've already talked about a couple of things that I wanted to mention before I talked about the nose cone. So it seems like this is a good time to do it. Behind the nose cone is the airplane's weather radar antenna and other instruments. The radar operates on radio frequencies. It both sends these radio waves out and then it detects their bounce back. If this equipment was protected by the aircraft's metal structure or composite skin, it could not function. Therefore, it's not within the structure of the plane's skin, meaning it's exposed to lightning strikes. 
And lightning strikes here do occur. It's the leading edge of the airplane, so this area generates a lot of static electricity, which, as we mentioned, can attract a strike. As an example, earlier I talked about how a lightning strike blew a two-foot hole in the ray dome of Captain Michelle's FedEx plane. So, without the protection of the Faraday cage that is the plane's skin, how is it possible to protect this area? Not only does the metal skin of the airplane add electrical protection, but it also could add a bit of structural protection. But since this area cannot be covered by metal, what can be done? Structurally, not much. The ray dome is constructed of fiberglass or Kevlar or plastic or a mix of resins. The key here is to allow maximum transmissivity so that the weather radar can do its job. That means it's exposed to not only lightning strikes, but bird strikes, hail, and even damage on the flight line. I read an article about this, and it said that the ray dome can be damaged by all the things I just mentioned, but the article also mentioned hangar doors as a potential source for nose cone damage. I couldn't help but chuckle to myself, because if a hangar door is damaging a nose cone, then somebody might need some additional training to keep two of the largest things on the flight line away from each other. Most of the time, the ray dome is dented, not blown apart. And this area is not pressurized, so even if it is blown apart, an immediate landing would not be necessary if a hole were punched into the ray dome. But damage like this is not common. In fact, sometimes the flight crew is unaware of ray dome damage until they've been marshaled to the gate and the damage is brought to their attention by the marshal or other flight line personnel. As far as lightning is concerned, about all that can be done to protect the ray dome is to adhere discharge wicks along the exterior of the ray dome, similar to the wicks that trail off the end of the wings. The nose may take a direct lightning hit, but hopefully the damage is minimal and the majority of the electrical energy from the strike is directed away from the instruments behind the nose cone. It is possible to continue flying with a damaged nose cone, even with no nose cone. Not ideal, of course, but an emergency landing is rare for nose cone damage. One last thing about ray domes. I've been talking here about ray domes on the big jetliners, and that means the nose of the airplane is the most logical place for a ray dome. On smaller airplanes, however, there could be an engine at the front of the airplane, so that just means the ray dome will be located on some other part of the airplane, usually a wing. Ray dome repair is expensive, just like any aircraft repair, so captains of large and small aircraft will do their best to avoid lightning. And speaking of the smaller planes, again, I've been focusing this lightning discussion on the larger jetliners, not the smaller planes. However, once you move to the smaller planes, out of the commercial category and into GA, or general aviation, the regulations set forth by the FAA are much different. Lightning protection can run the gamut from robust to minimal or basic, and in the case of privately owned experimental aircraft, none. Small private aircraft can be aluminum skin, composite, or even plastic or canvas, some even an open cockpit. The good news here, though, is that the planes in the lower cost spectrum typically are not using the highly expensive, highly sensitive, computer-based instruments that can be damaged or destroyed by lightning, and their owners are not likely pushing boundaries by flying near thunderstorms. Of course, there's turbulence around thunderstorms, too, so it's a good bet if the pilot is trying to avoid turbulence, as any small airplane pilot will do, the pilot will avoid the lightning as well. Earlier in the podcast, I mentioned St. Elmo's fire. This is not lightning and it doesn't damage the aircraft, but to the casual observer, it can look like lightning. So I want to briefly explain what it is and how it occurs. St. Elmo's fire is classified as a weather phenomenon, but only because it happens naturally. 
and in the atmosphere under specific conditions. St. Elmo's fire is a glowing plasma brought about by air ionizing around a highly charged conductor. With how we've already talked about the static electricity buildup on the leading edges of an airplane, the wings, the nose, the tail, you can correctly assume that the highly charged conductor in this case would be those sections of the airplane. As the air is ionizing, and before the electricity can be discharged, a glow can be seen across these surfaces, and because our atmosphere is comprised of oxygen and nitrogen, the resulting light is blue or purple, but it's faint, which means you need to be on a night flight in order to see it. Sometimes this glowing plasma can be seen as kind of a translucent river of light inside the cockpit, near the windshield, or across the instruments. Sometimes it can appear as streaks of what appears to be lightning across the windshield. It's harmless to both you and the airplane. The same thing can happen around highly charged power lines under specific weather conditions. The formation of electricity is different, but the conductor, the ionization, the light blue or purple light is very similar. The last thing I'll say about St. Elmo's fire is that it was considered a good omen by sailors back in the olden days. In fact, St. Elmo is the patron saint of sailors, so the sailors of those early sailing ships named the phenomenon after the saint. However, St. Elmo's fire can also precede a lightning strike or multiple lightning strikes, and as an example, it was noted approximately 23 minutes before the crash of Air France Flight 447, a flight between Rio de Janeiro and Paris in 2009. The crash over the Atlantic, where all souls were lost, was blamed on pilot error and compilations from the autopilot, not St. Elmo's Fire. But if you're looking for a good omen, maybe try looking elsewhere. What's the future of lightning protection in the environment of aviation safety? Several private firms are working on various solutions that are being guided by NASA. NASA has been involved with this for decades and in the late 1970s incorporated lightning research into their storm hazards project. In the early 1980s, they flew almost 150 flights into thunderstorms seeking out lightning strikes. These flights resulted in more than 200 lightning strikes and no crashes. The point being to quantify the properties of the lightning, to know where the lightning would strike the airplane, how frequently and with how much electricity. Years later, as composite aircraft skins were developed, teams at NASA's Langley Research Center have been experimenting with sensors embedded into the composite material. The sensors could give pilots real-time damage assessment following a lightning strike, while after the flight, that information could point mechanics to the place where repair is necessary. But if you ask NASA, that's only the tip of the iceberg. They think the sensors will one day be able to sense a pending lightning strike based on how the static electricity is building up across the wingtip or the nose. They hope they can even direct the strike to a, quote, safe point on the airplane, unquote. As far as I can tell, NASA is still in the research phase on this. They said themselves that this is a long process, and I've not seen anything new online on this topic in several years. New construction materials, new fuels, and a better understanding of lightning and thunderstorms has led to fewer and fewer lightning strikes on aircraft that can lead to damage. And, as I mentioned earlier, there hasn't been a crash brought about by lightning in the United States since 1963. There have been crashes outside the U.S., however. In 2014, a commercial plane out of Scotland nearly crashed after a lightning strike coming to within 1,000 feet, or about 340 meters, of the ground before the pilots regained control and then landed safely. 
In 2001, a small commercial plane was struck by lightning and crashed over Spanish islands in the western Mediterranean Sea. All on board were killed. In 2000, a lightning strike and pilot error caused a commercial plane to crash in China, killing all 42 persons on board. In 1995, a crew helicopter over the North Sea was struck and eventually crashed into the sea. Of the 16 passengers and two crew members, all survived the crash despite the winter conditions, high seas, and frigid water temperatures. In 1988, a commercial plane in Germany broke apart after a lightning strike and all 21 people on board were killed. In 1971, a lightning strike took down a commercial liner over Peru. Of the 92 on board, there was only one survivor. That's it. Per Wikipedia, just eight lightning-related commercial or airliner crashes are listed. All of these incidents, I will note, were exacerbated by pilot error. In other words, had pilots done everything correctly and responded to the strike properly, or had they avoided flying near known thunderstorms, these crashes would not likely have occurred. I'll also note that with the exception of Pan Am's Clipper 214, all aircraft noted were smaller, propeller-driven aircraft. My takeaway from this is that, like everything else, human error is never very far away. The airplane itself may have lightning safeguards built in, but that doesn't mean nothing will happen or that nothing will go wrong. What's paramount is how pilots respond to the problem or problems, and that means training, training, and more training. That's all for this time on Radar Contact Lost, the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the crash of Pan Am's November 709 Papa Alpha, call sign Clipper 214, you can look up the CAB's Aircraft Accident Report, or AAR, released on March 3rd, 1965. I found it at archive.org. Wikipedia also has lots of information. I'd like to thank the team here at RCL. On the air traffic control side, we have former U.S. Air Force and FAA controllers Cindy and Michael Hintz and Tony Gorham. Tony and Cindy also take care of the airports and procedures research. On the weather side, we have meteorologists Chris Abair and Nathan Stanford with expertise in climate and severe weather, respectively. On the pilot side, we have retired FedEx Captain Michelle Acorn and FedEx First Officer Larry Gregory. And new to the team for this episode is retired American Airlines Captain Max Hendricks, who was very helpful helping me understand why ray domes only dent and rarely are destroyed, as well as explaining St. Elmo's fire. He sent me some great videos that he recorded from the cockpit of his 777. Captain Max tells me he's never listened to a podcast before, so maybe this is the incentive he needs. It's not every day that the first podcast one listens to is one that you yourself contributed to. The RCL team is a great team because of these talented folks. Thanks to each of you. Also, let me mention that there are a lot of great songs about lightning strikes. Some of my favorites are by Aerosmith, ACDC, Kiss, Thin Lizzy, Garth Brooks, Judas Priest, and more. I'll have you know I used none of them for any of the research that went into this episode. With each new episode of Radar Contact Lost, I will bring you interesting but tragic stories of plane crashes from across the United States and from around the world. When these crashes involve the weather as a possible cause or contributing factor, I'll rely on my 40-year career as an Air Force, broadcast, and commercial meteorologist with a specialty of aviation meteorology to explain what happened and why. 
I'll also lean on my experts in air traffic control, meteorology, and piloting to peel back the curtain to take a closer look at what really happened. If you like this episode, give a like, leave a review if you can, and tell your friends. On Instagram, follow at Radar Contact Lost Podcast. We're also on YouTube. If you'd like to reach out, send an email to rclpodcast1 at gmail.com. That's rclpodcast, the number one, at gmail.com. And lastly, let me thank you, the listeners. Radar Contact Lost has been doing great on all the podcasting apps. We're getting downloads that are spanning the globe from Australia to Asia to Europe, North and South America, too. Thanks for climbing aboard and settling in for the latest from the Radar Contact Lost team. I'm Dave Gorham.